But what I had done when I was younger was written myself a letter saying, you know, whatever you decide to do in your career, do something where you can help close that gap of the have and have nots. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Emily Foote-Williams, a Philadelphia entrepreneur whose passion lies in education. In this episode, you'll hear how she's earned a bachelor's, master's, and a law degree, and how after years of traditional education, a Drexel law professor's teaching style completely changed the way she looked at learning. (laughs) The subject matter may not have seemed riveting, but they were the most riveting lectures I had been to and the most engaged I ever was as a learner. She was so passionate about spreading this style of learning that she gave up her law career to help bring it to countless students via technology. And while the company has positively impacted over 200,000 students, Emily's journey hasn't been without its challenges. Like back in 2015, when the company lost its CEO to a national tragedy. I got a New York Times text about an Amtrak crash. And so I, I, I looked at Dave and I said, I think that maybe Rachel's train, she just got on one. And then we spent the next seven hours basically looking for Rachel. She's also led practice through fundraising and acquisition while having children. In doing so, she's become a role model for those who want to grow both a young company and a young family at the same time. There was something innate with me that wanted to show I can have a child and do this and probably worked harder than people expected so I could erase that unconscious bias. Stay tuned for the story of Emily Foote Williams now on Philly Who. Today, Emily Foote Williams is the VP of Talent Engagement and Development at Instructure. Instructure is one of the largest education technology companies in the world and is the group behind Canvas, which is a popular learning management program used by many colleges today. Emily joined Instructure when they acquired her company, Practice, which was originally called Apprendnet. As you'll hear, Practice built its learning experiences around a virtual apprenticeship model, which allows students to actually practice the things they're learning about and to get feedback and expert critique as they progress. And though Emily wouldn't come across this learning style until midway through her third degree, this venture combined two of Emily's longtime passions, one being education and the value of learning, and the other being her mission to share knowledge and opportunity with those less fortunate than herself. And that mission goes as far back as her upbringing in the Philly suburbs. So we grew up in the suburbs, so on one side of City Line. And when you cross City Line, I was always struck as a kid of how different the neighborhoods look from a socioeconomic perspective. And we often talked about that and often talked about giving back in some sense. But what I had done when I was younger was written myself a letter saying, you know, whatever you decide to do in your career, do something where you can help close that gap of the have and have nots. And so when I was in school, Teach for America had come to our campus and had explained what their mission was. And basically, it was to help every child have opportunities, regardless of the zip code they were born in. And then the way that they played that out was they would have teachers similar to Peace Corps or have individuals similar to Peace Corps go work in underserved communities for two years, 
with the idea being you don't have to be a teacher for life, but you'll be exposed to the discrepancies, at least in our education system in our country. And then you'll take that experience with you for the rest of your career so that you keep that forefront in terms of the decisions you make to help provide more opportunities for people regardless of where they were born. Right. So you did teach for America. So I did teach for America. And where were you placed? I was placed in Atlanta. It was a much different pace of life than I was used to. It was much slower. It took me a year to kind of adjust to it. But then I really enjoyed the focus on friends and family and stopping and appreciating that stuff. So I was in Atlanta for two years and then I came back up to Philadelphia. I taught at Northeast High School and at night did a master's degree at Penn and then I ended up teaching for two years at the charter school KIPP in yeah. North Philly and I went down to Southeast DC the second year. Right, okay. So as you got your master's and returned to Philadelphia and began teaching, at that point you didn't think that it would be your whole entire career. Actually, originally... The program I originally was going to do was a PhD, less in the classroom and more for policy. Like administration type thing? Or, yeah, okay. just educational policy. Yeah. And so I thought I could be driven by making an impact, but not necessarily in the classroom. So you eventually would go on to attend law school. Now, I'm starting to see the thread here. So, you know, when you read the LinkedIn, you're like, man, this looks so random. But was that because you were starting to think about getting into educational policy and that sort of thing? So good question. So I started Teach for America thinking it would be like most Teach for America core members, which they do it for two years and then they go on to something new. I had taken philosophy of law and other classes at Penn as an undergrad, which I really enjoyed and thought immediately after Teach for America, I would go to law school and practice law and you know have more impact from that angle. To be fully honest, when I went to DC, I was shadowing in the beginning. And then a few teachers left the KIPP charter school I was at DC, and so I had got more responsibilities from a teaching perspective and less shadowing the school opening. And by the end of that year, I had completely burned out. Wow. And, and what is it that burnt you out? Because a couple of teachers had left, I had gotten more classes on my plate. And the way that the KIPP schools work is their thesis is if you have more time with the students, they come, they started as middle schools. Okay. And the students that come to them are usually about two or three grade levels behind. So if you have more time to them, you can catch them up in time for high school. And so school starts at seven and ends at five. It was every other Saturday. I taught Saturday school and then you got three weeks in the summer. So the pure time commitment was one of the biggest reasons of burning out in that I didn't have many breaks in the day. And you're there, you know, you get there at 6.30, leave at 5.30. And then as all teachers know, you have to bring work home. You have to go home and work, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not the work that mattered. It was just more also feeling, you know, the hard work isn't something that stopped me. It was just feeling like I was in this rat race but not making the, the type of impact right. I wanted. More of a hamster wheel type thing, just mm -hmm. kind of going and going and, and not really moving. So you decided to go to law school. So I went to law school. Was that a hard decision to make to leave teaching and, and go to law school? No, it was you were a, just so burnt out. I was so burnt out. I loved these classes in undergrad in law, and I just wanted a break and kind of a reset. The other reason why it wasn't a difficult decision was I decided to go to Drexel. Drexel had given me a great scholarship, so I knew that I would graduate without loans. Yeah. If I were to take a different uh, or have gone to a different school and knew I'd be saddled with big loans, I don't know if I would have made the decision. Right. Because I 
didn't exactly know what I wanted to do at the end of the three-year law school journey. And so I knew if I didn't have loans, I wouldn't be saddled with that. And therefore, I'd have more choices. Right. See, that's what I'm thinking when I'm asking, like, what, what was your plan here? Because by the time you end the law degree, you have three degrees, right? So you have yeah. bachelor's of arts, master's of, was it science for education? Master of science. And mm-hmm. then a law degree. And so I'm like, how do you, you know, spend all that time and presumably money to get very specific pieces of education without kind of knowing where you're going with it? We were raised to very much appreciate education. So anytime the opportunity came that I could further develop myself, I would take it if I knew it wasn't a huge risk in terms of the financial burden. Right. So that makes a lot of sense because for me, it's more so the time than the finances. The fact that, you know, it was driven into you to value education so much. Like it doesn't even matter if you don't know what you're going to do with this. This education is going to do good things for you, right? I think that's... That's how I was raised. I do strongly believe that education can be uh, developed not necessarily through the typical education route. Lifelong learning can be found in different ways. And if I did it over, maybe I would do it differently. But I was raised so strongly to believe in the traditional education routes that when I was trying to figure out what do I do next, that was the first thing you thought about because that's how I was raised. I think now, maybe more retrospectively, I would recognize that it doesn't have to be through the traditional routes to have gotten some of that. But with that said, I wouldn't change anything I did. I met incredible people, had an exceptional experiences. Drexel in particular is an incredible place to learn because, and what I was attracted to with them was they very much believe in learning by doing. So their engineering school, I think everybody knows is, you know, co-op based in other schools. And they had structured the law school that way, which was is only one of two in the country that does it, where you actually go and learn by working in the field, Yeah, which is something that appeals to me greatly. So give me an example of of something that you learned by working in the field. Like, were there any times where you gained something from doing it? You don't think that you may have gotten that from just, you know, looking at lecture slides or something like that. The best educational experience I ever had was at Drexel with a law professor of mine. His name was Carlo Komodo, who I ultimately ended up starting a company with, which I can talk about later. The way Carl taught was something I had never seen before from a formal education. So the way I did well in school, because I'm a very good mimic. (laughs) So I had this one, you know, in the one-to-many model of school where you have a lecture and somebody just dumping knowledge at you, I can spit it back and do well and, and get A's. Was I really absorbing it or learning it? I Most of the time, no. And I oftentimes felt like an imposter in terms of like, why am I doing so well? Because I actually don't feel confident or competent in what I was just taught. Carl taught in a manner that was completely flipped of typical education. So he would structure all of his classes in four stages. So stage one, he would present us with a problem and not give us any background. So for example, you own a hotel chain, Kevin, I'm buying it. We had a draft um, acquisition agreement, and then the next week come in and negotiate that. In front of people? In front of people. So week one was learned by doing. Wow. Week one. Week two was learned from your peers. So all your peers were doing the same case study. And then you and I would get up in front of the class. We would negotiate the agreement we drafted. So it was two skills in negotiating and the, the drafting. Yeah. And our classmates would score us. And by scoring you, you would see what you were supposed to look for and what skills you were supposed to 
incorporate or demonstrate. And so the next group would do better. Yeah. And so you always wanted to go last. Yeah. But I learned a tremendous amount. And because of that pressure of having to perform the next week, you put a ton of effort in in week one. And then in week three, we would go to a law firm. And you and I would have honed our skills based on the feedback we got from our peers. And we would present to lawyers. And they would judge us on the same scoring assessment sheet. And then we would watch two partners demonstrate that negotiation of the hotel acquisition. So we would learn from experts that week. And then the fourth week we had typical lecture on acquisitions. And they were the most, (laughs) the subject matter may not have seemed riveting, but they were the most riveting lectures I had been to and the most engaged I ever was as a learner. So that structure of learn by doing, learn from peers, learn from experts, was the only time my education career, even though education was beat into me, (laughs) that you should do this, and therefore I did all this formal education up until that point, because I thought that was the way to go. And yes, it did open opportunities and gave me great people to learn from, but from a perspective of was it effective, not as much as this experience I had in law school. So... Did you recognize this as you were going through the experience? Like, were you feeling, oh my goodness, this is, f- I feel like I'm, I finally am actually learning these things. Like, is that what you were thinking? I did recognize, I recognized he was an exceptional teacher. Um, he then, when I was a third year, created a competition to teach transactional lawyering skills to other students outside. So how could he scale that model? Because that model is very difficult to scale. He couldn't have more than 10 or 12 students. You have to know the experts to go to. It's expensive. And so I participated and helped him in designing that that year and then and left. So at both of those stages when I was in this as a student and then through the competition, recognized that this was a pretty exceptional um, opportunity I was getting and recognized I was building competencies and skills. And because of that, I felt quite confident when I graduated law school to go practice law. And you did. I did. Did you enjoy that? I did, actually. I enjoyed it a lot. I was was supposed to clerk right after school with the federal judge in the city. We ended up deferring it a year because there was another clerk that had to come in. So I practiced special education law for a year at McAndrews Law Offices, which I very much enjoyed. So it was working with students who had special needs and helping advocating for them to get the, the right accommodations that they needed in their schools. I very much enjoyed it. But then a year and a half into it, I didn't practice that long, my professor, Carl, had called me. He had received a grant from the government to help close the skills gap by bringing the way he taught in his classroom, giving more educators a way to teach that way by leveraging technology. Why did he call you after he got that grant? So I've asked him that. He said he knew that I would have a passion for the the goal Yeah. from the education perspective. He knew I would work hard. How did he know? I think just from my, his experience with me. And he also had called a couple of the experts, lawyers that he had brought in and said, who should I do this with? And um, they had said to do it with me. Yeah. So you get that call. What initially goes through your head? We got the call. He didn't totally tell me what it was. And so we went and met at Dandelion. And he explained to me his idea of how to leverage the power of video technology to give more people the opportunity to teach this way without a massive expenses. And my original thought was, oh, this is brilliant. I am not a risk taker. I'm very much by the books, clearly from the background of doing what I was told is how you do things. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, a, it was a decision of 
instinctively I wanted to do it. And then I just had to go through the process of letting go of following known paths. Was that hard for you to do? It wasn't as hard as I thought it would be for a couple of reasons. One, I talked to the judge I was supposed to start working with, and he he said, go do it, it will likely fail like most startups, but you can come back the next okay. year and clerk. So, so that lowered my risk. Right. The law firm I was at encouraged me and said, you can come back when and if it probably won't work. And my boyfriend, now husband at the time, who was much more of a risk taker than me and much more of a non-traditionalist yeah. than I am, especially how he approaches his learning, was very supportive of taking the risk. And then fourth, I so trusted Carl yeah. that doing something together with him was you know, kind of a no-brainer. You knew it would work out. I didn't know if it would work, <laughs> but I knew I had a lot of fallbacks if it didn't. And I knew um, that it was something that if it did work, could have an exceptional impact on, on many people. Were there any moments along that journey where you saw this vision coming to life and you thought, oh my gosh, we're onto something here? Definitely. The, the moments when we realized we have something that's quite meaningful were the focus groups we had with the students and the professors in terms of, are you building competencies faster? Are you building your confidence faster through this? What types of things were they saying? Very similar to what I felt going through it in a live setting, that this was one of the first times in their education experience that they were honing skills, getting feedback, and really feeling like they were going to leave this experience with, with tangible skills to, to go be successful in whatever they were pursuing. Was there a moment that you uh, called up the contingencies and said, hey, guys, I don't think I'm going to be coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I think when we got the second grant, I knew that I was in for at least two more years right. with much Different than a lot of entrepreneurs, we I had the government backing, so we had salaries. Yeah. We didn't have to go raise. We could keep our heads down in terms of we were going to make a really high-quality product that's going to impact people. And so that's what we did the first three years. So this was a PrenNet? Is that how you said? It was originally called a PrenNet, so the idea was a network of apprentices gotcha. working together. Wow. Very, very cool. So this thing works. You get the second grant. You work through the second grant. I imagine it's continuing to progress. And then at what point do you go from we're testing this idea to we're a startup, it's time to fundraise, it's time to grow, it's time to scale? Sure. So part of the second grant, you have to map out a commercial plan. So how do you scale this? So the idea with these SBIR grants are, one, you're doing something that's impacting society, and two, they're job growth grants. You're creating a company that will grow. We started to test which markets with this make the, the biggest impact from a perspective of revenue and impacting people. We did direct sale route, and then we also did channel partner route when I recognized that I did not want to be selling individual schools and or companies by myself. And so we thought, how can we scale the, the sales? Healthcare was where it really took off from a perspective of, um, of the direct sales. And so we started to look at who are the big players in healthcare that could help scale our sales and that wouldn't require us to build a massive sales team. And we partnered with a company called Ascend Learning who grew by acquisition. They have eight or so companies under them that they acquired. One of their business units helps develop nurses. One of their head of business strategy was a woman named Rachel. And so she and I worked together for a year in terms of really mapping out that partnership. And she was 
brilliant and kind and curious and had all of the characteristics of the people that were on our team. So we just got along quite well. And towards the end of that year, we had asked her if she would want to come on to help us really grow it. So I knew the education side. I could work quite well with our clients once we had them in. I could, you know, sell the pitch, but who can help us actually turn this into a strong business? And between myself, Carl, who's a lawyer and professor, and Paul, who's a technologist, and at that point we had two other technologists, Dan Lopez and Jason Blanchard, we saw Rachel as somebody who really could bring in that business expertise to help us scale the the business. Yeah. So now at this point, you've had this mission of, of helping, I guess, almost equalize education, right? To bring it to folks. Did you ever think that you'd be solving this problem with technology? No, not at all. I think I'm definitely a Luddite. I was not big into technology. I was much bigger into how do I learn from people. The year that we started it was 2011, and video was just becoming ubiquitous in everybody's pockets because yeah. of smartphones. Right. And I think I, I recognized the power of video and realizing that that could bring those human connections in a different way um, made me quite open to to working with technology. Right. So you bring on Rachel to lead the group. You have this team. You think you're, you're ready to go. How did that go? So it was great. So Rachel came on at the beginning of 2015. She went to a conference. It was the first conference she went to on her own to pitch at the time. A friend what later became called Practice. It was called um, GSB Conference, which brings together education startups and venture capitalists. And while she was out there, she met a team led by um, Paul Friedman, a team that was doing something similar but mobile. We had a web-based team out here. Ah. And so she came back and said, I met this team in San Francisco. It's like a company. It's a company. Yeah. They're either, it was called hands-free learning, they're either going to be competitors or we could work together with them. So they came out to Philly and we decided we'd actually be quite better together. And we started talking about what a potential merger of our two companies would look like with Rachel leading from the business perspective. And then two weeks later, so we were quite excited about it, mapping it all out. Two weeks later, Rachel and I were, we were speaking at a Penn GSE conference, so the Graduate School of Education around EdTech. And we went to um, White Dog to meet a gentleman from a company called Test, yes, over in Europe that does a lot of teacher professional development work. And he came to me as he was he was quite late. And so we were there, we had drinks, met with him. It was talking about the conference and the future of where apprentice at the time now practice was headed. And then Rachel had to had to leave. She ended up having to get a later train because our meeting took so long. So she went to go get a train. So Rachel lived in New York City and we were obviously based in Philly. So she would come like three or four days and then go back home to her husband, and she had, a, at the time, a two-and-a-half-year-old, Jacob. Um, so she left. I wrapped up the meeting. I went to meet my husband down at, um, we went to V Street. And while I was sitting at the bar, I got a text, or, you know, like a New York Times text about an Amtrak crash. And so I, I, I looked at Dave, and I said, I think that maybe Rachel's train. She just got on one. So I called Rachel a few times right from there, and there was no answer. And so I I had met her husband a few weeks before we went up to New York. We actually went to see a comedy show. So we're friends 
with John Oliver. So we went to go see his show and then go out for dinner with them. And so I only knew Todd, Rachel's husband, from that one-time meeting. So I didn't have his contact. So I looked him up on LinkedIn, sent him a message, and said, you know, I there was a crash. I hope that this wasn't Rachel's train, but she did get on the later train. And then we spent the next seven hours basically looking for Rachel. So we went to the crash. There was a lot of chaos. There wasn't, we couldn't get answers there. And then we just ended up going to every hospital in the city that night and couldn't identify her. So it ultimately, it was early morning, went to 30th Street. And because they said that they were sending people home in buses. So they had gotten most of the people who were on the train. There was 200 plus people and then sending them back up to New York through buses. So at this point when there's no communication, you're starting to just understand that the worst might be might be coming. We were having a really hard time getting any answers. And so I was talking to Todd constantly throughout that. And then there were journalists at that point at 30th Street Station who I talked to Ty, said, you want me to ask them for help because we can't, we couldn't find her. And so they did a like very short interview, only if Todd was comfortable with it. Interview with me saying, showing Rachel's picture and saying we're still looking for this one woman. At that point, they had identified, I think about seven people at that point who had passed away. After we did that, then a couple hours or so after, we had learned that Rachel had also passed away in that crash. That must have been an extremely difficult moment to have the search end. Yeah, more, I'm definitely. So then you have, the company has all this momentum, you know, you have this new team, this new plan combined with another company. It's doing the same thing, has the same mission, fits well. What do you do next? So... First, we make sure Rachel's family is okay. Second, make sure our team's okay. Were you okay? I, I mean, no. <laughs> I don't think anybody can be okay in that situation. But I think what you do next is you just think about the people involved and make sure everybody's okay. The company will, will figure that out. doesn't even matter at that point. No, it doesn't matter. And so we focus on the people, our users, our, you know, all the communities involved. So Rachel's family first and foremost, our team second, and then the community of our users. We were at a point in the company where we were either going to raise on our own to go take it to the next level or merge with the company in San Francisco, Paul's group, right. and take it to that level. So what we ended up doing was two weeks later, we merged with Paul's group, and then we raised the uh, our seed round in August, it was 1.8 right after to kind of keep that going. Did this event, this is a major, major life event for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. Did it change your perspective on things at all? Definitely changed my perspective in terms of, I think I've always innately and also just how I've raised put people first in how I think about things. And the company, yes, it's a tech company, but at the core, it's about providing opportunities for people. And so... It just reinforced that even more. And Rachel was very much motivated by making an impact in people's lives, specifically in her community of Detroit, of how can expats like her that are in New York City continue to help Detroit. Yeah, She was very much drawn to that mission at practice about how do we impact people's lives by basically 
giving them the opportunity to develop skills so they can improve not only their lives, but the people around them. And so knowing how driven Rachel was by that mission was incredibly motivating or it, it helped me continue to, to keep that at the forefront of, of what we were doing as a company. So when you fundraised, you guys combined and then fundraised. Is that, that's what you said, correct? Exactly. Okay. And now this is around 2015. This is when you became pregnant with your first child. Is that right? So I was, I, I miscarried that year and then I, that was right after the crash. So that was like the, a week or two after. A week. And then I got pregnant the next year when we were raising our Series A. Okay. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. What a year. Now I've read that you were told not to get pregnant if you're raising around that and that it'll hurt your chances. Is that right? I was told that actually by a female investor. My goodness. She knew that we were wanting to raise a family, start a family. And she said, I wouldn't recommend this year focusing on that. There are unconscious biases that, that do exist. Absolutely. So I wouldn't do it now. I didn't take her advice. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, not the youngest person to want to start a family. At the time, I was probably 36 or so. And so I didn't take the advice, obviously, but that was in the back of my mind at all times. And so I did not tell anybody I was pregnant for the first five months. Wow. Um, when it's your first baby, don't show as quickly, which was a very hard thing for me to do because I'm extremely transparent. It's very much part of our company culture, but I didn't want to jeopardize the company getting a Series A if these unconscious biases did, did impede people making that decision. So then what was it like then when you did share the news? For the most part, it was fine. Everybody reacted like you, you would expect a reaction like, oh, congratulations. And then we moved on to let's think about you know, how this is going to play out and plan that. I was probably more hard on myself than they expected or even knew in terms of my expectations for I'm going to work maybe even harder than if I didn't have a child to prove that this will have no impact, which is actually quite interesting right now because I... So I had Louisa, my first daughter, right after we closed the Series A. I got pregnant quite soon after with my second daughter, and she was born on the eclipse last August. And then two days later, we got a call from Instructure, which is one of the most successful education technology companies in the, the world. They have a product called Canvas, which has the largest market share for learning management. That. Yeah. Yeah, learning management systems in the higher ed and K-12 space. They called me two days after my second daughter, Hazel, was born to talk about a potential acquisition. Two days. Two days. So Paul and I, they were like, can you come out to Utah? So I called my doctor's office and said, oh, can I go to Utah next week? And they were like, you just had a child. No, you can't go to Utah. So I joined virtually, but we went through the diligence those three months and we closed the deal. And so we're acquired exactly three months after Hazel's birth. And during that period, just similar to when I had my first daughter during the raise, there was something innate with me that wanted to show I can have a child and do this and probably worked harder than people expected so I could erase that unconscious bias. Almost overcompensated. Yeah, I think so. And so now I'm pregnant again and it's fascinating just the difference, but still my own struggle with it. We have a new CEO at Instructure. His name's Dan Goldsmith. He's 
fantastic. And when I told him I was pregnant with the third, I was so nervous. And his reaction, I was so uncomfortable with. It was such a congratulatory, happy reaction. Never once said a thing about how this was going to impact work, just how happy he was for, for me and my family. And now I'm struggling with, oh, I can take a leave, which I very much believe all women should and our country should get better at a whole in terms of giving that time for both mothers and fathers. But I myself have never taken it or let myself. Wow. And so now I'm struggling like, it's okay, Emily, you can. Are you going to, do you plan on taking the leave? I do, but they have an internal bet of when I like will actually break it. Um, (laughs) But I really do want to do it because I strongly believe we have to improve as a country. So I should be a good example for the parents in our company. Those couple of days in the hospitals don't count. You actually have to stay home. Yeah. And <laughs> that's great. So if you could send a message to yourself at any point in time, butterfly effect aside, would you? And if so, at what point would you send it? And what would you say? I would s- tell myself to trust in myself sooner and portray that sooner than feeling that I had to take all the steps necessary to prove that I was ready to do something. So I think unlike other entrepreneurs I've seen, there's a, a level of self-assuredness and confidence that I've seen them show super early where I have took a very long time to make sure everything was right and having the impact, et cetera, and doubting myself along the way until I had all of that evidence. And so I think I would tell myself, trust yourself and portray that to others in a way that still has a degree of humility, but can maybe help you move things faster without being negatively overly confident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then would you have any advice for women now who are considering motherhood, but are, you know, worried about balancing that with professional or personal, you know, career or goals or whatever? So it's really hard for me to give the advice because I think I've been incredibly lucky that I've been able to have a very fulfilling professional life and a very fulfilling personal life. I am extremely lucky that financially I can afford a nanny. I'm extremely lucky that I'm in a workplace that I was helping to run. I brought my infants in at all the time <laughs> so I could bring them into my work environment that I know others don't have. And and now in, in structure, a company that's very conducive to families and supporting women who have children and wanting to balance the work and I'm very hesitant to give advice because I know everybody else doesn't have those, that environment that I had and that the, the fortune that I had to be able to do that. I mean, I'd love to say you can do it all, but I actually don't think that's true for most people. And it's probably quite insulting yeah. to hear for most people. I was able to do both things because financially, because of the types of companies I work at and the people that support that, because I have an incredible partner that shares equally in parenthood. So I think we actually need to make changes from a societal level, from a country, a government level of, of how we help more people be able to do yeah. both if they so choose. Um, and we're not there yet. If I could say so myself, I would encourage you to, well, I mean, you do, you publicly speak about this a lot, it seems, because yes, the stars had to align for sure for you. But either way, I think it's encouraging to see somebody who has made it happen, right? I've been very lucky to be able to to have both of those things. The other reason I'm extremely lucky is the 
team that we have at Now and Structure, but what was practice yeah. is exceptional. Yeah. Just the culture that they've created as and the the work ethic that they have and the dedication and the has been very easy for me to be able to do yeah. multiple things. A, a large part of making progress for those who don't have privilege is the people who do have privilege to recognize the privilege that they have and then to actually help to enact the change that allows others who before couldn't take advantage of those things to do yeah, so. Completely agree. Yeah. So along this journey, your company hired a CEO from New York, combined with a company in San Francisco, was acquired by a company in Utah. But this whole time you've been in Philly and you're still in Philly. How intentional is that? It's incredibly intentional. Why? We love Philly, our team. So we brought Rachel from New York because I also don't believe that all the talent is in Philly. So if I find talent elsewhere, we will get them. Um, we look at the people first. But I also was was tipping away at trying to get her to, to move down. And Philly is actually a pretty easy sell because there's so many amazing things here. So that was the first. The second was merging with San Francisco. It was great to have a West Coast team, but we made it very clear in the beginning that we were not going to move the team out to San Francisco, but rather have a hub and a headquarter here in Philadelphia, namely because we have incredible talent here. There's a great quality of life here, and we were continuing to show that and build that out, especially from an engineering perspective. And so we stayed in Philly there, and then we got acquired by Utah. And at the you know during the due diligence, we weren't quite sure. We were their first and to date only acquisition. Wow. We weren't quite sure if they'd want us to move to Utah. It's a global company, so we have offices in Australia and London and okay. Chicago and Seattle, but Utah's the hub. It was a little bit unknown of if they wanted us to, to move out there, but once Instructure has seen what a incredible team we have here in Philly, about 25 people, and the talent that you can attract in Philly and the quality of life people can have here, we are now building a East Coast um, permanent office that we will grow beyond just the practice team in Philadelphia. Wow. Which is a testament to Philadelphia that they've been so impressed with the people and the culture and the diversity that we've been able to cultivate here. Yeah, that's wonderful. What would you say is a common misconception about you? I think a common misconception is that I trust people initially, but while I typically like everybody that I meet, I find some good in everybody I meet. From a trust perspective, it takes quite a long time for me to fully trust uh, individuals, especially as it relates to work, that I'll see certain gaps in people and it will it probably takes longer than most people think for them to fill those gaps. We have a culture of development, so that helps them. Yeah, because you are extremely pleasant. <laughs> so that would be, <laughs> I would never guess. From your perspective, whether of education, tech, law, you have a lot of them. What's the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? How do we continue to attract and retain great people in the whole fabric of Philadelphia? So in the corporate world, in healthcare, in the arts, how do we continue to make this a place that people want to come and, and grow as individuals? Right. On the flip side, what excites you most about Philadelphia? The same thing, that's people. And the people that I've met in Philadelphia and the passion they have for making this a great place to live and work and have families and relationships, um, the people are 
is exceptional here. So how do we continue to create a place where those type of people more want to stay and live? Yeah. Finally, if you could get one message to every Philadelphian, be it a text, tweet, billboard, plane in the sky, whatever, one message that every Philadelphian could ponder, what would you say? How can I be more kind to other Philadelphians? Would you want them to tell you how to be more kind or you want them to consider how they could be more kind? I think from a scalability perspective, how they can be more kind. So how can every individual be more kind? On February 20th, Emily gave birth to her third child, Wyatt, who was born happy and healthy. And this time she did take that maternity leave. For more on Emily, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash Emily, or just check out the links in the show notes. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and follow along on Twitter and Instagram at podphillywho. And for Philly Who news and announcements, and to keep up with the stories of previous guests on the show, you can join the email newsletter via the show notes or at podphillywho.com forward slash email. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode's associate producer is Angela Gervasi with editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>